It is Friday on Daily Delivery. I'm Michael Rand. Happy to have you along for the ride on the last show of the week. Hope you guys are having a great week and are excited for the weekend. I know I am. Love summer weekends. Love uh, love this time of year. Doesn't get much better than this in Minnesota. And doesn't get much better than this on the Daily Delivery podcast because we got a good show today. Uh, Jeff Day from the Star Tribune will join me to talk Gophers Volleyball, a team that is very much raising its profile lately, I would say, even even though that profile was fairly high already. Jeff will talk about some recruiting uh, that, that's been going on within that program. New head coach Keegan Cook taking over for Hugh McCutcheon um, not all that long ago and continuing to uh, continue to get some of the best players in the state and the country to come to play for this program. So we'll talk about that program here in just a little bit. Have some Wolves Summer League thoughts at the very end, that wrapping up in just a day or so here. First, though, what did I miss? You know, we've spent a fair amount of time this week and even last week a little bit um, talking about the Twins, and a lot of that has, you know, has been negative, and I think there's a reason for that, uh, obviously, right? They're 45 and 46 here at the All-Star break. A disappointment from the standpoint of where they started the year, a disappointment from the standpoint of they could have been <clears throat> giving themselves some distance in a bad AL Central. Instead, they find themselves in second place, just a, just a half game back of Cleveland, but still looking up at someone in a bad division when they probably feel like they have the best team. They probably feel like they missed some opportunities. So we've talked about a lot of that, a lot of what has gone wrong. Let's talk today about some things that you probably and they probably should be optimistic about as the schedule resumes tonight in Oakland. Because as bad as things have been in a lot of cases, there are some things that have gone very well, and there are some things that they do have to potentially look forward to. So here are three reasons the Twins should be fairly optimistic about their chances in the second half of the season or the second the post-All-Star break. Royce would, Royce would have a have a fit if he heard me say second half of the season because that bothers him, the imprecise math of that. Um, the post-All-Star break uh, schedule, 71 games left this season, a lot of baseball yet to be played. We've seen countless examples of teams turning it on in the second half of the year and making life a lot easier for themselves. Um, I think about I think back to 20 years ago in particular with that 2003 Twins team, 44 and 49 at the break, 46 and 23 after the break. I don't know if this team has a burst like that in them, but I don't think they need that in this AL Central, and that is one of the things they have going for them. And I'll get to that here in just a minute. But what do they have to look forward to? Three signs, three reasons for optimism for these Twins in the post-break schedule. Here's number one: um, the pitching has been really good. And I think you know, we have a big enough sample size right now to say that the pitching should continue to be good. Now, the degree to which the pitching will hold up is still, I think, a reasonable question. Will the starters, as they are right now, continue to be first in innings pitched, first in strikeouts, second in ERA, first in opponent batting average in all of Major League Baseball? Like, I don't know if they will continue to be that good. That said, I think we've seen enough of Sonny Gray, of Joe Ryan, of Pablo Lopez, of the revamped um, Kenta Maeda, of Bailey Ober, who's been excellent this season. Like Every pitcher they're putting out there right now is giving them generally not just a chance to win, um, some excellence. And that 
you know, they have not been able to say that for a very long time. That's obviously been the strength of this year's team. And even the bullpen has been, in relative terms, pretty good this season. They are eighth in the majors in bullpen ERA, 3.76. So I think if you're looking for something, obviously, to hang your hat on right now, to say this is what we do well, this is our identity, the pitching is clearly that. Now, again, I say I say that with a caveat, right? Like, we, we can't assume that the things that are going well will continue to go well, particularly at the at the rate they are going. But I think these pitchers they have right now have established enough of a track record this year. Some of them have a longer track record than just this season. They should continue to be, you know, I, it would not it should not surprise anyone if the starters ERA post All-Star break is is top 10 for that 71 games. I don't think that's I don't think that's outlandish to think of based on what we've seen this far, what we've what we know about this team. Now, if it slips some, they are going to need to make up for that, and I've talked about that plenty, but that is reason number two for optimism. I don't think the hitting can be much worse than it has been. You know, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you say. But I think I think it was Lavelle earlier this week on the show saying, you know, when, you, when, you're, at the, when you're at the bottom, you can't go any lower, and that kind of feels like where the offense is. Now, they've had their, they've had their moments, but they've, you know, we're still talking about a team that in 40 percent of their games this season have scored two runs or fewer it has been inconsistent is the the most polite way to describe it but that is that has probably been their biggest problem is that they'll have these outbursts eight runs 10 runs 11 runs seven runs but it's more often than not mixed in with way too many of these zeros ones and twos you can't win that way even with such a great and dominant pitching staff it's just you got to get to that magic number of four they're basically like a 750 team when they score four or more, and they're a 250 team when they score when they score three or fewer. It's 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 not that hard. You got to get to four. How are they going to get to four? We've talked about this plenty, but their best players have to produce. I'm looking at Carlos Correa and Byron Buxton in particular, Jorge Polanco to an extent. Um, you know, guys like Jose Miranda, who they were expected to get more of this season. I'm just looking at the 2023 projections at the start of the year Carlos Correa according to Fangraphs was expected to be a five almost a five war player 4.9 war Um, they had him down for 644 plate appearances a 271 average a 459 um, slugging percentage 351 on base that's an 810 OPS his OPS right now instead sits at 700 and he is uh, at a war of just around one. That is not getting it done. He is way below his projections. Now, is that caused by injury? Is that going to be something that's sustained for the rest of the year? Should they not expect an uptick in his projection? That's a good question. But he has enough of a track record. This is this, the player he was last season, when I'm sure he was dealing with some of these same things. Um, the player he was last season, the, the Twins would absolutely take that version of Carlos Correa. That's what they were projecting. That's what they were expecting. That's what they thought they were getting with a six-year, $200 million contract. Same with Byron Buxton. Projections for him uh, was to be almost a four-war player, to have a slugging percentage of 490, OPS of around 800. He's been far lower than that this season. Jorge Polanco was supposed to get 531 plate appearances. He's been nowhere near that. He's been injured. His OPS was supposed to be up in the high 700s. He has not been that player, and he has not been healthy enough. Jose Miranda was supposed to be a contributor. Max Kepler was supposed to be better. Go down the list. You've got a lot of players who are underproducing and not enough players who are overproducing. I'd say a guy like Donovan Solano 
is an exception to that. They've gotten some overperformance from some people who weren't supposed to be as key contributors, Willie Castro, things like that. But by and large, there is so much room for improvement with this team. That should give you at least a reason for optimism, to know that there's a track record of the hitters who are in here who are projected for good reason to be better than they have been, that there is something within them that they can perform better than they have to give the Twins at least a chance to get to that four-run mark in the second half far more consistently than they did in the first half. And there I go calling it first and second half again. I'm just going to do it. I can't I can't help myself. Sometimes it just rolls off the tongue. Last thing to be opti- optimistic about with the Twins in the second, uh, the second part of the season. I didn't say half. Um, schedule. Schedule and run differential. Things that they don't really have so much control over, but just looking at some things. Strength of schedule. Twins have the easiest schedule in all of baseball. The remaining schedule for the rest of this year, according to the Tankathon, according to other sites too. A combined winning percentage of their opponents in the in the last 71 games of the year, just 466. They're done with the Yankees. They're done with the Dodgers. They're done with a lot of they're done with Atlanta. They're done with a lot of these other really good teams out there. Now a lot of teams in the AL Central are also fall into this category. Now, four of the five teams that have the six easiest schedules remaining are in the AL Central. But guess what? The team that the Twins are really really battling in the uh, in the AL Central race right now, Cleveland. They have the they have their their schedules right in the middle. 503 remaining winning percentage, 15th hardest remaining schedule in baseball. They've still got six games with the Rays, four with the Orioles, three with the Dodgers, six with the Rangers, three with the Astros, seven with the Blue Jays. They've got a lot of AL East games left on their schedule. Twins toughest games left though, like three against the Rays, three against the Diamondbacks. They've got a bunch against Texas. Then they call it the Reds, the, the the Phillies. They've got a lot of winnable games left on their schedule. A bunch of games against the A's, including these three right out of the break. They've still got a few against Kansas City. Um, some games against the Rockies. Seven against the White Sox. Six against the Tigers. They've got a lot of games left against winnable, against beatable opponents who have struggled in the first part of this season. So look at that. You look at their run differential, which says they should have four more wins than they do at this point right now. They should be 49 and 42 based on their run differential instead of 45 and 46. And a lot of that is that they have struggled in one run games. I believe they're nine and 15 right now in one run games. Now they were bad in one run games last season. Is this a problem? Is this a trend? Well, 2021, they were quite good in one run games. So these things tend to smooth out. It's not just managing. It's not how you deploy your bullpen. These things do tend to smooth out over time. You should maybe expect the Twins to be better in one-run games, be be closer to their projected record based on run differential in the second part of the season. So that's what I that's what I'm saying. Let let's look at this with you know if you're looking at this with an optimistic lens, if you're looking at how they how they could turn a corner to a certain degree in these final 71 games. Those are the reasons. The pitching has been good and should continue to be good, even if it's not quite as good as it has been. There's plenty of room for improvement on offense, and they have an easy schedule, and the run differential has room for improvement to uh, to improve their record. So now, I guess the bottom line in all this before I get to it, before we get to Jeff Day, is what if they do win the division? What if they win 84 games, and that's good enough to win an awful AL Central, and then they go and get absolutely roasted in the playoffs again. Is that enough for you to say this season was a success? Absolutely keep going with Rocco Baldelli, with Derek Falvey, with Thad Levine. That's a question for me. I think Jim Suhan, Patrick Royce, Lavelli, Neil, all guys that know a lot about this team um, have all expressed some question about whether 
the regime will withstand will be able to withstand um, another losing season another year without the playoffs. What if this team barely squeaks in and then gets gets blown out anyway? I don't know. I don't know what the threshold for success is. I think fans are waiting to see some sort of modicum of postseason success before they declare anything to be successful. But let's see how they define success this year. Bare minimum is winning a bad division, I think. Bare minimum. Beyond that, I don't know what it is, but there are reasons to think they can get that done. There's still better than a 50-50 chance, according to all these projection systems, to win the AL Central. Let's see if they can get it done starting tonight in Oakland. MGM Wine and Spirits is the choice for savings, service, and a great selection of spirits, premixed cocktails, wines, and of course, ice-cold beers and hard seltzers. With over 30 locations throughout the Twin Cities and beyond, there's an MGM near you. Head to MGMWineAndSpirits.com to find a convenient location in your area. Get social. Follow MGM on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and trends. Make great moments with MGM Wine and Spirits, your locally owned and operated choice for over 50 years. Save time, save money. Shop MGM. All right, happy to be joined right now by the Star Tribune's Jeff Day. Multi-platform writer and editor. I don't know if that does justice to everything Jeff does at the Star Tribune, but you're going to be hearing a lot of his voice in the next uh, seven to ten days. Not only on this sub, not only on this subject of Gopher volleyball, but uh, Jeff and I are going to do a couple shows next week. Best and worst trades in Minnesota sports history. Um, so look forward to that next week a couple of episodes next week but uh, jeff right now i want to talk go for volleyball because you wrote about some recruiting stuff lately that was interesting new coach keegan cook landing some pretty good 2025 uh, incoming recruits and just kind of wanted to catch up a little bit like you know we we talked a lot about you know when they made the transition from huge hume Hugh mccutcheon was <laughs> huge mccutcheon why huge do McCutcheon. i oh, it, what an easy nickname it's 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 hard for me for me to not look at his name and say huge instead of Hugh. Hugh McCutcheon, um, you know, the, the transition from him to to Keegan Cook, um, it feels like a, a pretty important time in this program's trajectory. That said, it seems like they're off to a pretty good start, at least from the recruiting side. Yeah, um, I, I've gotten to spend some time over there and uh, talk with some of the coaches and talk with Coach Cook. And um, it. I think it's an exciting time because as opposed to other transitions in coaching, I think that this staff recognizes there is no pause button here. There is no gathering yourself or trying to start over. They are um, having to integrate themselves into a fully functioning team with high expectations. There is no starting over here. Um, the team they inherit, even though they lost some uh, key players, is still going to have monster expectations. Um, they've announced their schedule, which is, you know, much like in the McCutcheon era, that continues to be a really impressive non-conference schedule. They're going to have, you know, <laughs> it's just it's just one team after the other in the non-conference. Um, number one, Texas will be in town. I think they've got Stanford and Oregon uh, on the West Coast. They're going to have the Big 12, uh, Big 10 Challenge at the PAV. Um, a lot of really good matches. And then the recruiting part of it is interesting because I think they knew – you know, right off the bat, they needed to bring in some transfers. They had positions of need uh, when they lost Jenna Wenis, when they lost Carter Booth, uh, CeCe McGraw graduated, Rachel Kelly graduated. So they went out and got some transfers. But then this part of it is equally important, even though it's so far down the road. You know, it's right. class of 2025. And um, these commitments... Um, you know, they're verbal. So, you know, nothing is set in stone that we saw when uh, McCutcheon left, they lost a key recruit who hadn't signed yet. So, and even everything being what it is, but 
talking with these girls was really great. And it's Carly Glick, who's from here. She's a Champlin standout. And then it's Kelly Kinney, who's from West Palm Beach, Florida. And they're like mirror opposites of each other. They're both 6'2". Um, they play opposite sides of the net. They're heavy arms. They are, um, they're both, you know, it's funny to talk about these athletes. And I talked with them about this. It's like, you're so young. You know, they have worked incredibly hard to get to the positions they're at and uh, recognize that players don't get to this place on talent alone. It's a ton of effort and a ton of hard work to angle yourself to, to um, you know, be able to commit to a program like the University of Minnesota and to have the offers coming that they did. But at the same time, their careers are still in progress. Their talent is still very much in progress. But they were both um, – what really intrigued me about the conversation was just learning a little bit about how is the staff going about recruiting. You know, sure. you're, because the, the McCutcheon staff um, had a long history of attracting really high-level talent. And um, it seems like this staff is going to build off of that in their own way. Um, and what made it interesting to me, like with Gilk especially, was she didn't have some destiny of playing for the U, you know, hometown yeah. kid playing down at the path. That was not her. So the fact that they had to kind of work with her and convince her that they, not only should she stay at home, but that this was the staff to, to stay with was really intriguing. And the way that they did that um, sounded like it was through a really personable, um, you know, humanistic approach. Um, and I don't know, I just... For me as a reporter, I love hearing about how um, coaching staffs work this part of their their job. Um, and Cook has one of the most incredible stats in coaching that I've heard in modern college athletics. Let's hear it. What is it? When he was at Washington, he never had a player transfer. He what? never, even, never had a yeah. even in the portal era of the last couple of years. I, this is what I'm saying. Never had a player transfer. Wow. Um, yes, and so I. I think that speaks to both his understanding of the kind of players that he wants and targeting the right kind of players, but then building that understanding with, with the athletes that he's bringing in. So they also have this really young and exciting staff, um, you know, and this, again, these are heavy shoes to fill, you know, Matt and Jen, how were the last two assistants were tremendous recruiters and, and extremely well thought of in, especially in that high school club volleyball arena. And so trying to, find people who can step into those roles was really key. And they've got Kristen Kelsey who had club experience last year in Nebraska and um, is kind of acting as one of the chief recruiters. And they have Eric Barber, um, who's another guy who's been doing a ton of recruiting work and they just promoted um, Kylan Munoz to a uh, permanent assistant. So they've got this staff that I think they're really excited about. Um, and that when in talking to the girls, they said that this was a collective recruitment. You know what I mean? Um, Cook, is going to be the person who drives a lot of this. I think his personality and, like I said, some of the things he can say about his tenure as a head coach at Washington, to me, is impressive. Um, and we'll see what it does for players throughout this process because the competition in volleyball recruiting is intense. Oh yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, you and me. I imagine we've. I think we've talked about this before, but I just think about these girls. You're 16, 17 years old. And when I was in when I was in high school, other people were determining my future. I was trying to get somebody to say, "Hey, come to college here, or we'll accept right. you into right. our world." Yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. People waitlisting you. You're kind of being toyed with. These girls are in the driver's seat of their future, um, which I think for some might sound really exciting, but I think that's a heavy burden. And um, Kelly Kinney was telling me that 
you know, this date of June 15th, which is the day that college coaches can officially recruit for this class of 2025. She's like, think about, and, and she was saying, it's like, that has been looming out in my future. And in that way, when it started to happen, it's a surreal feeling. It's like this thing you've been waiting for and waiting for, and then it hits you. Um, and part of what was attractive to them about the approach that the U staff took was this element of, we're not even going to get into the volleyball. Let's just, let's just talk about the fit personality wise um, and, and culture, you know, wise and things like that. So anyway, um, I think it's a good first step and I think they're still recruiting. I mean, I, like I said, this is, these are long games that they play and, um, but it's a, I think it's just one of those signs where I'm sure they feel really good as a staff about getting in here and getting positive momentum on this front because I mean, they haven't coached a game in, no. in reality. And, right. but it's just, and for me, it's been a real learning experience of what does it mean to take over a program? What does that entail? And you, the more attention you pay to it, you learn that, boy, the regular season is now just, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It's like a wedding or something. You do, you, <laughs> you have the wedding day, right. but boy, all of the planning and stuff that goes into that is just as vital. And um, it seems like they're off to a good start. Got to get the right caterer. Um, oh, got to have it. Got to have that. <laughs> Kinney, the Kinney thing was interesting because Cook was, you know, this U19 team that he yeah. coached this spring, like he, he cut her basically from that team, kept her off the final roster, still thinks highly of her enough to recruit her here. And she still thinks highly enough of him in this program to come here. That piece was interesting to me. A hundred percent. And that stuff is um, the, the McCutcheon had USA history. He didn't coach. I don't think he coached USA while he was here, but anyway, um, he had such a deep history with USA volleyball and cook also has that um, he's kind of building his career in that space and has been for a number of years, but she said that, and it made sense. You you do, in spite of your anger, she said you do gain a kind of respect for the yeah. person. And she said, you know, she this is under nineteen. Well, she's very under nineteen. Yeah. You know, Calissa Minity was on that roster too as a middle blocker, and that's a freshman at the U. So, like, you know, uh, a player like Kinney is still a cup, maybe a couple of years away. She'll have more and more opportunities for that kind of position. Um, but I also there was a great story that was written about her by a newspaper down in Florida about the excitement she had about making a team like that. And Gilk is going to go play on a U19 team, too, um, not coached by Keegan Cook um, or she's going to try to. She's one of the finalists to make the roster. And again, these are just developmental milestones in the kind of players that the U is landing. They're getting kids that are, you know, when USA Volleyball looks at who do we want to develop, um, they're finding those kind of players. And I think that's a good sign. But I, I Again, it goes back to maturity. You have to be a very mature player to have a coach cut you and then be yeah. able to, to differentiate the two things and say, well, even though that happened, um, there may still be some real benefit for my long-term career here. Well, and what's interesting too is like, you know, for as accomplished as McCutcheon was and how great this era was in you volleyball and, you know, like an extension to a degree of the of some of the framework that, that Mike Hebert and even some of the people before him yeah. laid down – you know, there, there are, you know, it's like a, it's like a, there's a couple gaps on the resume. Like they, they didn't make a, a title match. They had like sweet 16s and, and elite eights and, you know, some, some final fours. And, you know, that, that sounds great. It, it, I, I don't want to like say, you know, want more and want more, but there are still some, some goals to check off with this program that, that Keegan Cook can, can take them to a, another level, even though that sounds kind of weird to say with all that has been accomplished by McCutcheon. Yeah. I think, you know, the stuff that you're talking about is a common 
feeling. I think it's the kind of stuff McCutcheon pushed against in his entire, you know, career and where he came to be as a, as a coach and, and where he is now at the U and sort of his mindset, which is about how do we, how do we peel away from results while also recognizing that results matter a great deal? Um, I do think that Keegan Cook, in my opinion, from what I've heard from him a little bit so far, would agree in the in in one very basic uh, element of this. He would not have taken this job if he did not think that there was ways for him to make an impact. He believes in this university. It was one of the things he said at his introductory press conference. The University of Minnesota volleyball team matters. I, I will forever remember him saying that because it was like, how do you get a 38-year-old real rising star to leave a very successful program um, and part of and, and to replace a legendary coach. Well, part of it is this very thing. Um, he he I think he does believe that um, stepping in behind McCutcheon has obvious uh, comparative difficulties, um, but also a lot of room to continue a great legacy. So I think those two things can play off of each other. And um, and you know, I I do think that having McCutcheon um, remain at the U and having him as a voice of um, advice and, you know, direction, not just for the volleyball program, but for the athletic department. I think players like that. I think that McCutcheon still, and he just took a job with uh, FIVB that is going to keep him involved in volleyball at the international level as a consultant. And, and um, but anyway, my only point being that, Hook would I think would say that you have to believe that there are there are areas that you can improve a program. That's why you come and do it. Um, whether that's results based, I don't I don't I don't quite know that yet about him. I don't know if his end goal is 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 like that or if he can, I think he does have more of this sort of you know what McCutcheon would have called a holistic approach. I do think that yeah, kind of, yeah resonates through. But you're right. I think Gopher fans. Um, are the only spoiled fans in the state of Minnesota might be Gopher volleyball fans, Lynx fans, certain fans who get to have the high expectations that come with uh, long stretches of winning uh, that have evaded so many of the teams we love. Uh, but, you know, the U, what in what makes me so excited about covering it, you know, all the time is that they really do operate at that level where the highest possible outcomes are there for them. NCAA championships, Big Ten championships, Final Four runs. That is every season. And that is why these recruits matter. It's why them, you know, getting the right kind of transfers matter. It's why getting this thing going now, well before the season starts, is, yeah. is essential to the to their success. Yeah. And I would I would not say by any stretch that they weren't successful under McCutcheon too. I want to make sure that's oh. that's clear. I, I think and oh, I think no. it, and I think oh, it, yeah. and I think it was, but it is interesting. Like you just, when you, you know, I think there probably are, uh, there's probably a, a subset that's like, okay, um, you know, let, let's win a national championship now. Let, you know, I think, you know, I think that happened for a while in like Gophers men's hockey, you get spoiled by mm. a lot of years of going to the tournament, but you don't win it all. And it's like, well, that year was nice, but Hey, you know, like maybe you can win a championship, <laughs> something like that. Like I, I think Motsko is experiencing a little bit of that right now, although there's still a, a honeymoon period there, but you know, I think they've experienced that in their, in their history. I think the go for women's hockey yeah. program probably yes. experiences that it's, it's like as, as good as it is, you always want that next thing. And it's, I'll be interested to see if, if cook, you know, even if he's not so much results driven and kind of has this more holistic approach like McCutcheon did, if he, 
you know, if, if he has kind of that that same framework of like, hey, yeah, I'd like to win a national championship here. I, I want this program to have that too. I had a friend of mine who is a musician and he once got to play a very big show, right? Yeah. And I was asking him, what's that like uh, when, when that happens? He goes, it's incredible. He goes, then you walk off stage and you're alone in a dressing room and you have to kind of reconcile the fact that that's over now. And I remember reading Hugh McCutcheon's book that he wrote last year, and he talked about winning that gold medal uh, with the USA men and then flying home. And it's like, no matter what you accomplish in a results-based world, tomorrow's going to come. You know what I mean? It's like, and you're going to be left. And Kelly Sheffield, I asked him about this last year after the, the Badgers were in town, the Gophers had just destroyed him and uh, the only Big Ten team that beat him last year. And I got curious uh, just to ask him a question about what's it like to win a title, to work so hard for that and to get there. And he goes, yeah, you you get that moment, but then you quickly have to, <laughs> you know what I mean? It just doesn't, it doesn't stop. I think that stuff to me is the most interesting thing about high level athletics um, and how people deal with not only failure, but success. What does it mean to succeed? All of those kind of questions. Um, and, you know, when we talk about these, it's, it's why volleyball is a great sport to cover here because they have had that. They have players who have had that. They have, you know, people like Kelly Kinney, people like Carly Glick that are committing, or Gilk that are committing here that are, you know, playing for USA Volleyball, that are achieving these high level things, but still have to figure out, well, what does it mean to me to actually want to develop as a person outside of this space? So um, I love this stuff. I, I think, I think there's all kinds of interesting things to try to understand about coaches and what they want, what do they really want out of their job and out of their station in life? Cook seems to have, I, I've, like I said, I've talked to him a few times. Um, and in my opinion, he seems to be an extremely thoughtful man. And I think that's a great starting point. I think it showed in these recruiting stories in the way that uh, these girls talked about his approach to trying to convince them that he would be a good person to entrust their, their college career with. If he's never had a transfer, I mean, that, this era will put that to the test, but that's oh impressive. My God. That's impressive. Oh, I'm going to roast him when it happens to cook first transfer. <laughs> out, it's over. You thought you could do it your whole career. No, I'm, I'm, I'm thanks to your writing. And you know, I've, I've been interested in this team for a while, but thanks to your writing and thanks to the coverage and their profile being raised on things that they're doing. I'm, I'm interested in this season, this, this coaching transition too. So I'm sure we'll talk more about this as we get closer to the start of the season. And certainly as the fall um, unfolds, Jeff day, appreciate it. And uh, again, listen for Jeff next week. Thanks Mike. Appreciate the visit from Jeff day. And like I said, listen for more of uh, myself and Jeff day next week, a couple of special episodes where we look at the best and worst trades in Minnesota sports history. Those are going to be a lot of fun. So check those out next week. Let's finish with the cooler quick wolves finish up um, summer league play on Saturday. They're one and three. They lost to, I believe the Sacramento, the Sacramento's the other day on, uh, on Thursday, Josh Minot continues to be pretty good in summer league action. They're giving him plenty of run He's a name that he's just a guy that I'm watching. I think a lot of a lot of Wolves fans are watching. Why not? Why not is a great nickname for him. Um, can he crack the rotation? Are there any of these young players that are ready for bigger roles? Guys like Josh Minot, guys like Leonard Miller, guys who they've brought in right now to to see to see where they are right now in their evolution. I don't know. I think they I think they're trying. I think they're still kind of a veteran team. Um, you know, even guys like Anthony Edwards and Jaden McDaniels are going into their fourth season. They're not. 
you know, even though they're young, they are not necessarily young in terms of a lot of the NBA right now. So let's see where that takes them. Let's see what goes on with the rest of, uh, you know, Summer League finishes up on Saturday. Let's see where they wind up because I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about which of these young players might be able to get into the rotation in 2023-24 because they're going to need some of those young, low-cost players to be good for them as time goes on. That'll do it for me today. That'll do it for me this week. Thank you for listening to all the episodes. If you missed any, please go back and listen to them. You can sure do that over the weekend, catch up on everything. We'll be back at it again Monday with Royce on Daily Delivery.